don't touch that dial or mouse pad. Welcome to another episode of Shout for Libraries here on CJSR, where we share the conversations and occasionally the controversies happening within library and information studies. I'm Timothy Arthur. And your shout diehards out there will recognize today's very special guest by his familiar and sorely missed voice. It's shout alum Joel Bleckinger who spoke to Dan Hackborn about his investigations into the information literacy habits of conspiracy theorists in the QAnon movement. Check it out. So let's position ourselves a bit. My name's Dan, and I'm an MLIS candidate at the University of Alberta's School of Library and Information Studies. Can you introduce yourself? For sure. Um, My name is Joel Blackinger. I'm a graduate of the uh, U of A uh, Library and Information Studies program, and I'm uh, currently a librarian at Sask Polytech. Thanks for talking to us. So last year you presented at the Politics of Libraries conference and your talk was the delightfully titled Indicators of Truly Epic Postness, Information Literacy, Authority, and the Contemporary Political Podcasting Ecosystem. Can you give a brief introduction to the topics you covered and your key takeaways from diving into this area of research? For sure. Um, It was a uh, talk as part of the Politics of Libraries um, speaker series instead of a conference. um, They went with a speaker series this year. um, And I submitted a proposal about um, it was it was about QAnon and information literacy, basically with some podcasting sprinkled in at the end. Um, And I it, it arose out of a, um, a directed study course that I did with Michael McNally at, at U of A, Dr. Michael McNally. And we um, had looked at the um, history of information literacy uh, back to some of its founding documents, in particular, um, Paul G. Zerkowski's um, The Information Service Environment, um, which is the first coinage of, of information literacy. And um, we had traced uh, the, use, the usage of the term from that document through some of the um, pivotal documents in inter- information literacy's history through to the ACRL framework. And that's, so that's what we did in the class. And then January 6th happened and um, I, started going very deep on QAnon um, like a lot of other people in light of that event. And um, I tried to kind of take what I had learned in the directed study uh, into the Q territory. And the reason why podcasting is in there is I felt that um, there were a couple of podcasts in particular that I felt reacted really um, kind of, they exhibited more fluency with, with QAnon. Um, like uh, QAnon Anonymous is the one that I talk about in the presentation, but I was also thinking about uh, podcasts like Chapo, Trap House, and uh, TrueAnon, and just kind of, I guess what's called the dirtbag left in some circles. Um, but I, I, had, I found that their analysis of January 6th and Q was just so much more, in depth and exhibited so much more like fluency with the basic concepts of Q. And I was like, uh, librarianship is, is saber rattling a lot about 
uh, fake news and mis and disinfo, but I felt like these pods were kind of doing what we were supposed to be doing or what we were ostensibly doing, or at least were um, fluent enough with Q to even talk about it meaningfully. <laughs> anyway. Right. Uh, and we'll get back to that saber rattling in a bit, because I think that's a, a real key component within the context of library and information studies. But to set the stage, during the presentation, you mentioned that the discursive move into the mainstream of fake news, alternative facts, or whatever terms you'd want to use, coincided with your decision to go into library school. My own decision to apply came from a perspective on extractive capitalism-driven climate change. And as should be obvious now, the global response or lack thereof that was itself driven by a heavy propaganda or disinformation campaign funded by the fossil fuel industry. So how much did your views on disinformation play a role in your decision to choose library and information studies? And how have your views changed now that you've graduated, if at all? This is a really interesting question. Um, yeah, when I went to library school, it was um, fall of 2018. So halfway through the Trump presidency. Um, and I remember writing a uh, intro paper for Dr. McNally about the fake news phenomenon and um, librarians role uh, in fighting it as a, a pressing issue. Um, I think, I'm trying to think of how my views on this have changed. I, 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 I think I started to realize um, spending more time in online and in online uh, subcultures like Q for the research for that um, presentation, just how peripheral librarianship can be to some of these conversations. Um, but now that I'm employed and I'm actually working in an instructional capacity, I feel like I've moderated a little bit back where you know, it, it can be somewhat revelatory or at least useful to instruct students in um, things like Kapow and Radar and um, crap and stuff. So even though in the presentation I was, I was quite critical of those, I feel like I've moderated a little bit because, um, you know, I, I notice sometimes with, with my students that it, that may be the first time that they've ever thought about the reason for creation for a, a specific information source. And so I think there is uh, an intervention to be made there in an instructional sense, but I'm still you know, fairly skeptical as reflected in the presentation that we can um, shift the discourse like society-wide. I think that's a little um, ambitious to say the least. <laughs> right, okay, so on that topic of changes in perspective, is there anything that you would change or add to that information that you presented during the presentation specifically now that you have the benefit of reflection and hindsight on it? Hmm. Well, the piece that I wanted to add in that I could not fit in. So basically the presentation has the title, the title includes the contemporary political podcasting ecosystem. And the reason why it has that is I had this wildly overly ambitious abstract <laughs> uh, 
where I, where I thought I was going to look at Q across the political spectrum and see how different types of podcasts were treating it, you know, whether that was like in light of January 6th. And that was just like way too, that was like a, that was like a master's thesis. Um, so I just ended up focusing on Q and on anonymous and some takeaways that I thought librarianship could take from their engagement with Q. Um, but the, the piece that I didn't fit in, because there were just too many moving parts, um, was I don't really think that librarianship or the authority frame can even account for uh, the authoritativeness of QAnon Anonymous covering Q, which is so interesting to me because like podcasters, you know, disaffected, university educated, um, uh, people who are just grinding on pat Patreon, like can the framework even address podcasting? Like are these authoritative people in any traditional sense of the word? So it's, I, I that's where I, I wanted to go with the presentation, but it was just way too long uh, to get there. But I just, I, and I realize this is weird to be talking about on a podcast too, but um, on a radio show slash podcast, but I was just noticing with Q that uh, QAnon Anonymous, for example, one of the main commentators on there is this guy named Travis View. Um, and he's just like a, I think he was a computer programmer in the States who just got transfixed by the Q phenomenon. And he uh, started following it online um, and became one of the biggest authorities on it. Um, and then uh, people realized that Travis View itself was a pseudonym. And I found this hilarious article that I couldn't fit into the presentation, but it was like, I think it was in the Washington Post and, um, some journalism awards or something that had uh, given him an award for his coverage of Q, they, they kind of uh, got ticked at him for using a pseudonym. <laughs> and he was like, I, I would be doxxed if, uh, if I actually used my real name. And I think his real name is known now, but I thought that's an interesting thing that we can't even account for. Um, does that make sense? Anyway, I'm off. It does. Later. That's a pretty fascinating uh, example. And, this ongoing negotiation of how identity is derived or is inherently bound up in where authority comes from and what that means now that identity, whether it's in discourse for or against identity politics or whether it's about the ways in which people who are from certain communities who are identified online can be subject to pretty harsh consequences. Uh, to be frank, I think that's a pretty fascinating wrinkle in this whole conversation around authority. Uh, one of the other key takeaways that was really of interest to me from this presentation is, and you alluded to this earlier, the idea of hubris and self-mythologizing present within the domain of libraries. In the presentation, you said that an entire highly fragmented chaotic media ecosystem has developed online for which library and information studies has only imprecise conceptual tools, despite our best rhetorical efforts strategically centering us and our profession in these debates. I think and fear we will only become increasingly peripheral to them the longer we neglect to genuinely revise our thinking in light of them. And to circle back to an earlier question, 
I guess, sadly, the centrality of libraries to information is not a given and is kind of a propaganda or a lie, which a certain kind of LIS student, i.e. me, fell for. We internalized this idea that libraries are bastions of ethics in an information age, but you get here and you find an institution seemingly unwilling to change except in kind of survivalist neoliberal ways. For example, how can we justify ourselves monetarily as a use of taxpayer dollars or how we can we continue to propagandize our role as bastions of liberal democracy while staying within our budget? These ways that seek to shore up and legitimize a traditional practice rather than an attempt to transform or reposition practice so that it is closer to these, the intersection of debates and conflicts that we now find ourselves. Are there any examples of this repositioning or transformation that you'd like to share where libraries are in fact actively taking on the work to maybe address themselves more centrally to the audience within this information environment? Well, off the top of my head, I think of there's a piece by Sarah Hartman Caverly that I, I lean on quite heavily in the, the presentation. And she she actually goes on to 4chan and uh, looks at uh, the way that, basically she looks at the information ecosystem on 4chan, on cue boards. And um, I, I ended up jumping off from that a little bit in my own presentation, like look, just looking at how sourcing was used or their idea of sauce um, in a couple of different instances. But I really admired Hartman Caverly for um, the specificity of what she was doing. Like instead of um, kind of uh, grandstanding about liberal rhetoric, like actually going onto the boards themselves, um, seeing how they function, like working more anthropologically. <laughs> mm. uh, that, I, that I admired, the this, this specificity. And I feel like that um, comes out of like a DH world almost. Uh, at least that's how I felt I was practicing when I did the same thing. Um, it was just like, let's just like look at this online phenomena and uh, try to understand how it functions. And she even acknowledges in the piece that it's like a taboo move and she's doing it, um, she's doing it like at night in her off hours <laughs> after being an academic librarian, which I thought was such a we weird like and funny admission. But yeah, like, yeah. Um, I think we need to, we need to acknowledge that these communities exist and not, that's not to uh, condone them or to, uh, to you know elevate what they're doing through study but it's um i think just just a attention to detail um across the board in librarianship would be uh, a net good <laughs> you know what are we talking about when we talk about information well in this case we're talking about uh people creating like a kind of live um live action role play um, on these boards and going out and finding sources uh, to support their claims that are totally erroneous 
totally spurious, totally um, damaging, but they're like sourcing. There's like a citation economy. It's mm-hmm. totally bonkers. The presentation came out of this feeling of, so I was reading these pieces that were about misinformation and Q and library's role and librarian's role in the problem. And I was thinking to myself, I don't even know if these people would be patrons. Like mm-hmm. they would, when, when there's a lot of memes and jokes about, about anti-vax research right now and that it, it happens scrolling your phone on the toilet, you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 uh, totally. And so I was, I was just thinking like, there are, I don't know if, I, I can't say this conclusively because maybe this is happening at public library, uh, public access terminals and stuff. But my sense was that I think a lot of this quote unquote research is doing an end around on us. Like we're not even in the equation. It's about individual users and their relation to um, digital network media and boards and groups. And so like the librarian, like almost has to insert themselves into that equation, like intentionally, you know, because as opposed to assuming that we are these intermediaries, like what's something I say in the presentation is I think within the Q-pilled mindset, um, the librarian is um, part of the global cabal, part of the information gatekeeper, you know, like they're thoroughly liberal actors. (laughs) and even then i think that's a very generous reading me like potentially uh you could very well be right i also wonder if like we're so peripheral that we don't even not even part of the cabal we're not even part of the cabal (laughs) (laughs) because i wonder like in our pursuit of kind of an objectivity uh and invisibility of practice as librarians if we made it easier to replace us with search engines um, oh, totally, totally. By performing yes. this kind of like invisible role of inter information retrieval. So if inter information retrieval can be done to a greater body of information via a search engine, then why would you, why wouldn't you just do it on your phone on the toilet rather than take transit to the library, ask a librarian, uh, assuming that you're even talking to a librarian and not a uh, frontline library worker uh, of some kind. Right. Yeah, your point about search engines is phenomenal because we've almost, in Googleizing ourselves, we've um, we've automated the uh, the interaction and taken yeah. ourselves out of it. And anyway, that's just like a whole other kettle of fish. <laughs> it is. And you, you touched on it a little bit in your presentation because like you touch on that some of this discourse around and hand-wringing around. What do we as libraries, what do we as librarians do about this this epidemic of information uh, is kind of a self-justifying thing in an age of austerity when we, yes, uh, maybe the library seems like more of a socialist utopian fantasy given the way it's been framed or given the way in which common resource pools and the commons have been framed within a neoliberal context like, we're looking, we're grasping at straws for ways in which to, to justify ourselves. Yes, fully. And I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to dispute that reasoning because of the, 
because of the uh, market logic and austerity. And as I said earlier, like now that I'm in instructional situations, I've, I've moderated a little bit, realizing that, oh, like this isn't, even if it's a one shot in instructional session, um, there is potential here to make some kind of intervention. But again, I don't know if, I think the way that we're still interacting with information systems is so has been so privatized. There is no intermediary role. The intermediary role is page rank. The intermediary mm-hmm. role is the algorithm. Anyway. Right. Yeah. And I guess I want to touch on the point that you just brought up, which is that you do think there is still, now that you're, you're practicing professionally, you, you've moderated a bit and you found a bit of a role uh, for librarians within that information literacy instruction, not to, I guess, immediately counteract that, but I did think it was interesting in your presentation that some of the the research that you were citing found that, especially the paper that you just mentioned, which we will link to in the show notes, is that communities like QAnon through sayings like question the narrative, go to the source, yeah, saucier digs. In fact, they are utilizing a lot of the information literacy advice that we as librarians are encouraged to give out. We are encouraged to say, question what the biases of the, the publisher might be or the author and make sure mm-hmm. you find multiple sources and all these kinds of things. And Yet somehow that advice is not enough. That advice can be uh, co-opted or maladapted in all these kinds of ways. So the advice alone isn't, isn't enough. Yeah, I mean, I think this was the central thrust, like the central question of the presentation was, and I, I wanted to make it pretty provocatively, like what if IL has been so fully a- appropriated by people in conspiracist communities that um, it's like there's there's two there's like a two solitude situation mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to where um, within library instruction and like the liberal like habitus or whatever it's uh, you know go to the source means one thing but then within the q-pilled paranoid you know google addled uh, Wayback Machine addled 4chan mind, it means something totally different. And what if yeah. these are just two um, like discursive communities or whatever that are spinning out without even touching each other? <laughs> or like, what's the relation to them? Because like Dana Boyd has that really good title in that I cite in the presentation. Like, you say you wanted media literacy, did you? or something like like, is this like the corrosion of the 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 librarian like the liberal version has led into a a deep suspicion of everything or like Mm -hmm. what uh, that's something I couldn't really do you have thoughts on that like how are these did one predate the other or do they exist in some kind of relation to each other like in terms of um okay we need one source from the left and one source from the right okay, that's objective now. Or like, and then the kind of 
conspiracist mindset, which is doing like a, an against the grain reading on all sources as like, okay, these, these people are lizard, lizard people <sighs> that consume, that consume, uh, oh, what do they call it? Uh, damn it. The, uh, adrenochrome. <laughs> they, oh yeah. 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 Drinking the blood of babies. Anyway, <laughs> like I'm, I'm off in Q land here. The initial thing that comes to mind and to fully put my bias up front, which may be a hammer and nail problem where I look at nails and I see neoliberalism seems to me to be a very logical extrapolation of deferring the responsibility for reality from kind of a consensus to individuals where each of us are individually responsible for determining what is and isn't true. And in some ways, I do think that that kind of critical thought is necessary for an informed community uh, in many ways. And in other ways, when you combine that with having to work multiple jobs for less than a livable wage and just the basic necessities required for survival, that it just doesn't it's not realistic uh, to expect everyone to be constantly vetting information on this level on an individual level. And then in terms of its lineage, I do think there are some legitimate, like this doesn't just arrive whole cloth out of nothing. There are some legitimate concerns about the ways that authority has been traditionally constructed in the ways that you allude to in, in your presentation and in the ways in which we can see that newspapers and maybe not to pick on newspapers, actually, more, more like entertainment news, let's say, and editorial pieces uh, have failed to provide information in an accurate way. But it's definitely a question that we'll have to think more about. Uh, and really reckon with as a discipline, I think. We are running out of time, so I'll just ask if you have any final thoughts that you'd want to share before we sign off. For sure. Um, I was just going to jump off on what you just said. Um, this takes us, you know, full circle in the presentation. So in the presentation, I start off with looking at that Zerkowski document, which um, I would encourage everyone to read. It's a fascinating document. Paul G. Zerkowski was the president of the uh, Information Industry Association. He had a horse in the race of uh, wanting information literacy to be a thing. And he talks about uh, how America needs to, um, Americans, uh, some percentage of Americans need to become information literate, literate by 1984. <laughs> like this insane goal but um the the point that i make about his his founding document and it's related to what you were just talking about is he he does not address authority in any real way in this at all he just assumes that the market will surface uh reliable incredible information <laughs> it's like this massive lacuna in the founding document of il that I think, personally, I think has been what's led to uh, so many of these challenges for us. I have wondered in my own, in my darker nights of the soul in IL world, like, did we just start with a broken concept and then we've 
you know, now we're attempting to teach students, you know, in a, in a, in a crit lib sense, um, you know, an authoritative person is someone who has maybe has a PhD, but also like, you can't solely depend on that because there's a bunch of fake credentials. And also we don't want to um, create a totally exclusive academy. So someone can also be authoritative if they're, you know, have lived experience of this. Like, it's just such an incredibly difficult thing to teach, especially in a neoliberal one shot. <laughs> dun, dun, anyway. dun. And on that cliffhanger, that's where we'll leave you today. Thank you so much for talking with us again. Sure. I'm on Twitter at uh, Joel Bleckinger. My last name is B-L-E-C-H-I-N-G-E-R. Great. Thanks so much, Joel. It's been uh, a real name's... pleasure talking to you, Dan. Once again, that was Joel Bluckinger speaking to Shouts, Dan Hackborn on the information literacy habits of QAnon conspiracy theorists. That's all for this episode of Shout for Libraries. You can find all our past episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. Until next month, check it out. See you in the stacks. <laughs>